Well, please turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, we'll be reading this morning from verses, uh, verses 1 through 15, so the entire chapter. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. Now, I've mentioned this before, but the Bible does not give us a church order. However, the closest thing we have to uh, what you could say a church order in the New Testament are the epistles that Paul writes to Timothy and to Titus. And so far in this short epistle to Titus, we have learned about the mission of the church. That the mission of the church is to labor for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness through the ministry of the preached word with which we've been entrusted. We've learned about the government of the church. Paul tells Titus that he is to appoint elders in every town as Paul has directed him. This tells us that local churches are not to be independent, autonomous beings, but rather they are to have formal connections and relationships to other local churches. And then last week we considered the authority of the church. Elders are called to hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught, confessed, summarized in the creeds and confessions of the church, and that is the foundation from which elders or ministers are to teach and to discipline. And so this morning, we are going to consider the teaching ministry of the church. And as we read Titus chapter 2, I'd like you to think about this question. Allow this question to be percolating within you. Uh, what, what should be ordinarily coming forth from the pulpits? of local churches. Well, please turn your attention now to Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. 
exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, notice what the Apostle Paul says to Titus here in verse 1. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, what contrast is, is Paul making here? Well, if you recall from last week, the Apostle Paul addressed these, these false teachers that were teaching errant things in these various church plants on the island of Crete. And we read in verse 11 of chapter 1 that these false teachers were upsetting or literally ruining whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Therefore, these false teachers were teaching errant or unhealthy doctrine that was having serious and profound ramifications and consequences, negative consequences upon families within these church plants on the island of Crete. And Paul is telling Titus to do the very opposite. To teach not unhealthy doctrine, but to teach what accords with sound or healthy doctrine. Paul is saying that healthy doctrine should lead to the flourishing of men and women within the home and within the church and within the society at large. Paul is telling us that doctrine has consequences, practical consequences in our individual lives. Now you'll notice in verse 15, Paul says pretty much the same thing as he says in verse 1. He again calls Titus to teach. He says, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. And so we see that Paul is setting off Titus 2 as its own distinct unit within the short epistle of Titus. Thus, in Titus 2, Paul is telling Titus to essentially teach two things. And we see these two things set before us in verse 1. Titus is to teach about those things which accord, or you could say those things that are fitting with sound doctrine, which consist of virtue and practical conduct. And then the second thing that Titus is to teach is sound doctrine itself. And we see that defined for us in verses 11 through 14. And so Titus is to teach both virtue, practical conduct, the law, and then he's to teach the gospel. He's to teach sound doctrine. And so those are the two things that we're going to focus our attention on this morning. So first, we see that Titus is to teach the good works that accord or that are fitting with sound doctrine. And you'll notice in verses 1 through 10, Paul addresses every adult demographic within the church. He addresses older men. Older women, younger men, younger women. He addresses Titus himself and by extension elders and ministers within the church. And he also addresses bond servants. Now, we're not going to be able to exhaustively consider this chapter today and we will return to Titus chapter 2 next week as we finish off all of these various demographics that Paul speaks of. But I'd like us to first turn our attention to what Paul has to say to older men. So in verse 2, Paul says, that Titus is to teach older men to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. 
And I'd like to focus your attention upon this one virtue of self-control that Paul uh, commends for older men. And this, this virtue of self-control is similar to the virtue of, of being sober-minded that Paul also refers to here. And the ancient Greek understanding of this virtue of self-control referred to the avoidance of extremes and careful consideration for responsible action. And this virtue of self-control uh, is alluded to multiple times here in verses 1 through 10. Paul sees this virtue as a very important virtue that members within the church are to live according to. Well, Paul concludes this list by saying that older men are to be sound, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness, or in patience. Now, this word sound is, could be thought of as being free from error, not necessarily in a literal sense, but it also could be rendered as healthy. There to be healthy, there to be sound and faith, love, and steadfastness. It's the same word that Paul uses in verse 1 to describe the doctrine that Titus is to teach. Titus is to teach those things which accord, which are fitting with sound or healthy doctrine. According to the mind of Paul then, Sound or healthy doctrine leads to a sound or healthy faith, love, and patience within the Christian life. As you step back for a moment, the description of an older man that Paul gives here is one who is level-headed, one who is not given to extremes, one who does not get too high or too low, one whose head does not swell with praise, nor one who is easily angered when provoked. Now, many of these virtues are quite ordinary, but they're very difficult. They're very difficult to habitually live according to. And Paul commends these virtues for older men within the church. Now, if you uh, skip down to verse 6, Paul addresses younger men within the church. And notice how many virtues Paul commends for younger men. Just one. He says, younger men are to be self-controlled. No doubt, Paul probably had quite a long list in his mind that he could have put forward for Titus to teach, but he only singles out one virtue. And what is that virtue? Self-control. I wonder if the reason Paul does this is because he knows that self-control oftentimes is the biggest struggle for young men. Oftentimes, young men struggle with self-control as it comes to issues related to the seventh commandment. Lust and purity, and this is especially true in the day and age in which we live in with the prevalence of social media and the internet. And thus, Paul calls young men to be self-controlled. Young men oftentimes struggle with self-control as it relates to the eighth commandment and the call to work. Many young men fall in one of two extremes. Either laziness, failure to grow up, or an over-the-top and zealous ambition that's all-consuming. Oftentimes, young men struggle with issues related to the Ninth Commandment and the use of words and being hot-headed. Young men also struggle oftentimes with issues related to the Tenth Commandment of covetousness and contentment. Young people in their 20s, especially as they go through college and begin their career, they're not, they're not, they're, their goal in life is not to work an ordinary job, 
with an ordinary life in an ordinary city. They want to do big things. They want to change the world. They want to be radical. So Paul is calling them to be self-control as it comes to issues of the Tenth Commandment. Furthermore, the only way in which a young man will become the older man that Paul describes in verse 2 is through the path of self-control. So Paul's saying to young men, don't get bogged down with all this long list of virtues. Focus on self-control. Now, you'll also notice that Paul doesn't just focus upon men in, in Titus 2. He also addresses women within the congregation. And he does so in a very similar fashion in which he addresses men. He, he addresses older women and then he addresses younger women. And so in verse 3, uh, Paul says that older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior. Now this word reverent is a word that's not used often in the New Testament, but it's used uh, more often in the broader Greek culture. And it's, it was a word that was used to a priestess in a, in a Greek temple. And it's elsewhere translated as venerable, meaning older women are to be highly esteemed within the covenant people of God. And Paul goes on and says that older women are not to be slanderers. Ordinarily, not always, but ordinarily women are more empathetic than, than men are. And I think Paul is saying here that older women need to be on guard, that they don't turn that virtue of empathy into a vice of slander and gossip. Because empathy can very easily turn into gossip and slander of others, and so he, he forbids slander. He also calls them to, to temperance in the area of drink and wine, as he does for older men, and this makes sense, as we learned last week, that the Cretans were known for debauchery. They were known for heavy drinking, and so he wants them to be different than their surrounding culture. Now, the last thing that Paul puts forward before older women is that they are to teach what is good and so train the young women in, to live virtuous lives. Now it's interesting that here in Titus 2, Paul alludes to two types of teaching. On the one hand, Paul alludes to authoritative teaching that Titus himself is to do. Remember verse 15? Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. But then Paul speaks of another kind of teaching, a teaching that doesn't come with authority. And this is the type of teaching that older women are to uh, partake of. Now, the reason why Titus is able to speak or preach with authority is not primarily because of his gender or his age or his education or his economic status, but rather because he holds a special office within the church. He's a minister. And Paul, throughout his epistles, links together three very important ideas. The ideas of office, teaching, and authority. Therefore, Titus, as an ordained minister within the church of Jesus Christ, has the right and the commission to teach authoritatively. Now, this contrast between these two types of teaching helps us make sense of what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. When he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Now what Paul's saying there is not that women cannot teach at all within the church. 
uh, Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 speak about how all people, by virtue of their general office of believer, are to teach and admonish one another with song, songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. Uh, Paul's not saying here that women have no role to place with, play within the church. Paul's not saying that women have no voice within the church. Rather, what Paul is saying is that women are not to teach authoritatively within the church, which could also be thought of thought of as women are not to hold the special office of elder or minister. And the reason that Paul gives for this in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is not that women are somehow ontologically inferior to men, as if women are, are somehow second-class human beings. No, we know throughout Scripture that we are male and female, image bearers of God who were redeemed in Christ. The reason that Paul gives for this position within the church is the order of creation. Man was formed first and then woman. And so, generally speaking, women can do within the church what any unordained man can do within the church. There's nothing that makes an unordained man somehow ontologically superior than a woman within the church. Paul lays the emphasis on office. Those who are office bearers are to teach with authority. And furthermore, you'll see in verse 5, Paul urges younger women to submit to their own husbands. The grammatical emphasis here is on their own husbands, not to every male out there. Paul speaks of these gender roles as applying in the church, in the home, and not in society at large. And thus we see that older women here have a very important role to play within the life of the covenant community of God. They are to teach and train younger women. Now, the image that Paul is speaking of here is not a lecture being delivered within a classroom. But rather, this word train literally means to instruct in prudence or Christian wisdom. You could even render it as encourage. Thus, the idea that Paul is putting before us is that older women are to take on a maternal uh, posture towards the younger women in the church and thus encourage them to live lives of virtue in their practical lives. So what are the, the sorts of things that older women are to train or encourage younger women in? Well, Paul lists seven things. Now, four of the seven things that Paul lists, four of the seven virtues and practices of conduct that Paul lists, have to do with marriage and the home. So what does this mean for those who are single? What does this mean for those who are married without kids? Does this mean that uh, women in, in, that ca in, in those categories are somehow one-third of a woman? Well, we have to remember that every epistle is contextually conditioned. Meaning, Paul writes what he writes in every single one of his epistles based on what the church or the churches to which he is writing were facing. And so it's very important that we, we reflect upon what the churches on the island of Crete were experiencing. So based on what Paul says here, it's, I think, safe to assume that most of the younger women here in these churches on the island of Crete were married with kids. And thus Paul is wanting to address them within their own station and season of life. But furthermore, recall what we thought about last week. What were those false teachers teaching in these church plants on the island of Crete? Well, I said that they may have been teaching what the false teachers in Ephesus were teaching, as we learn about in 1 Timothy 4. We learn in 1 Timothy 4 that there were false teachers in Ephesus who were forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from food. 
They were promoting an aesthetic lifestyle. And so these false teachers in Crete may have been teaching the very same things. They may have been encouraging these young women who are married with kids to pursue a celibate aesthetic lifestyle and rid themselves of their marital and maternal duties. And thus Paul is wanting to double down upon the goodness of the natural family. Paul is wanting to remind these young women that if they are a wife and a mother, they have been called to very good and legitimate callings. Callings that should not be denigrated, but rather callings that should be embraced. Callings that should be celebrated. And I think this is an important point for us to recognize in our own cultural context. We live in the midst of a culture and a society that very much denigrates the institution of marriage, of the natural family, of the raising of, of kids and, and children. Uh, we live in, 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 a, in a Western world in which birth rates continue to plummet. And so we as a, the covenant community of God are to double down on the legitimacy of these callings in life as being callings from God that we are to embrace with seriousness. And so you'll notice that Paul calls older women to teach these younger women to love their husbands and children. Paul is essentially saying here that uh, wives and mothers are to embrace the responsibilities and duties that they have within their marriages, within their homes, just as husbands and fathers are to do the very same thing. Paul doesn't give us a very nice, clean, tidy list of, of duties that are feminine in nature, duties that are masculine in nature. Each couple, each um, um, husband and wife need to discern and exercise wisdom in how they are to operate their lives together. Uh, Paul continues and says that women are to be pure working from home. And we shouldn't think of this, uh, this command as being a black and white condemnation of women in every circumstance working outside of the home. Uh, Paul here, first of all, I think is, is forbidding idleness. He's calling women to be active in their callings and vocations in life. But the reason why I don't think this is a black and white condemnation of women working outside the home is, is what we read in Proverbs 31, which is another very famous exposition of, of the godly wife and um, woman. So in Proverbs 31, verses 16 through 19, we read that she, that is to say this ideal woman, considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a, plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the staff and her hands hold the spindle. The things that this godly woman and wife are doing in Proverbs 31 seem to be work that's done outside the home. And thus each husband and wife need to use wisdom to discern how best they can pursue the duties and the responsibilities and the roles that God has given to them. Furthermore, Paul says that younger women are to be submissive to their own husbands. Now, we don't have a lot of time to uh, go into this. Um, this, in many respects, is a hot-button issue in our day and age and within even Christian culture. Now, there are huge, two huge ditches when it comes to this biblical idea of submission of wives. On the one hand, uh, on the one ditch, we, there are those who can render this concept as completely meaningless, as if there are no differences between males and females, no differences between roles within the home and the church. 
But on the other end of the aisle, on the other ditch, there are those who use this concept of submission as uh, basically uh, an excuse for chauvinism. All I'm going to say at this point is to remind you what we just got done considering. The type of husbands that Paul is calling young women to submit to are those who are self-controlled. Now, that would have been very countercultural in the historical context here because in the Greco-Roman city, uh, Greco-Roman culture, men uh, could do whatever they want and women were to submit to them. But Paul here is saying, no, you men are to be self-controlled. You men are not to use spiritual headship as an excuse to serve yourselves, to please yourself, to pursue your own interests and hobbies without consideration of your wife. And so when men are doing what they're called to do, when they're exercising this virtue of self-control, it makes submission a glad and joyous thing for young women to do. Now, as we embrace the goodness of these things that Paul speaks about, things that on one hand seem quite ordinary, uh, we need to be careful that we do not unintentionally make churches uninhabitable for single women or those who are married without kids. I think at times this can be the unintentional result of conservative churches as we live in a culture that very much is denigrating these institutions to which Paul is speaking of. Now, we have to remember that the image of God is a multifaceted concept, so much so that one single human person cannot possess all of the image. And this makes sense, right? If, if males and females are image bearers of God, no single person has been both male and female at the same time. So no single person can possess all of the image. And furthermore, no single human person can pursue all of the goods that are, that are enjoined to the image of God commission to which we have received. The image of God comes with many goods that we're called to pursue. And we are limited, finite creatures, and thus we have to be selective in the goods that we pursue in this life. Now, if you think about your own lot in life and you are pursuing two or three or four goods, you are necessarily then neglecting other goods, not, not because you're acting in sin, but because you're weak and finite. And so for those who are single, for those who are married without kids, we need to recognize that they are able to pursue other legitimate, legitimate God-given goods that are, uh, that are enjoined to the image of God commission that, we're, that we have received. They are able to pursue these image of God goods that women who are married and have children cannot pursue. And we, we need to recognize that. We need to celebrate that. Those are good callings and vocations given to them from God. And we need to commend them in those pursuits. And this is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17, as he speaks about the gift of singleness. And he says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So some of us will be called to marriage. Some of us will be called to the very good pursuit of raising children. Some of us won't be. And we are to have a category for those latter people and embrace and commend them in the goods that they are able to pursue that those of us who are married, those of us who, are, who have kids cannot pursue. Well, this morning we're not going to uh, have time to consider the other demographics that Paul alludes to here. Elders, ministers, and bond servants, we will touch upon those next week. But uh, before we consider this section, I'd like, a, I'd like to just remind you that the church here is 
uh, to be intergenerational. That's the idea that Paul puts before us. Uh, we are to be people who rub shoulders with um, individuals, families, and churches that are not our same age, not in the same season of life that, that we are in. There's, a, I think, a temptation in the contemporary church to silo ourselves off and only spend time with those who are our age, our season of life. Now, of a church plant, uh, we can't do this by necessity. We're small. And one of the benefits of that is we're forced to hang out with people who are older than us, younger than us, different stages and seasons of life. And that's a good thing. That's how God has designed the covenant community to conduct herself. Because as we do that, we are able to be a model to those younger than us, and we are able to learn from those who are older than us. Well, briefly, I'd like us to spend a few moments considering the sound doctrine that Titus is to teach. In verses 11 through 14, Paul says that Titus is not only to teach the things that accord with sound doctrine, but he is to teach the sound doctrine itself. The sound doctrine is the platform, the foundation from which this virtue and character is to proceed from. And so in verses 11 through 14, Paul speaks about the grace of God. And he says that the grace of God has appeared. Paul defines grace not as a substance, but as a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 11, Paul speaks about the first coming of Christ. And what was the purpose of Jesus' first coming? Well, Paul says in verse 11, to bring salvation for all people. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says that there's another very important purpose for the coming of Jesus Christ into this world. And he defines his second purpose in verses 12 through 13 as he speaks about this grace is meant to train us to put off the deeds of the flesh and to live patient, hope-filled lives in this present evil age. And thus, we see that Jesus came to train us, to train us to live holy lives and to train us to live hope-filled lives in this age. And in verse 14, Paul summarizes these two great purposes yet again when he says that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Therefore, God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ came not only to save us, but to sanctify us. Not only to redeem us, but to purify us. We need to embrace both of these purposes that are attached to God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ. And Titus then is to teach these Cretans on the island of Crete about the grace of God, the grace that saves them and sanctifies them, the grace that redeems them and purifies them. God not only adopts us into his family, God not only places his name upon us in the waters of baptism, but God promises through his spirit to change us and transform us so that we speak and think and act more and more like our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the promise of God given to us in verses 11 through 14. And so it's God's grace in the gospel that makes us zealous for good works, that puts wind in our sails as we seek to live countercultural lives in this present evil age. It's God's grace in the gospel that loosens our enslaving grip upon the vices in our life. It makes us self-controlled. It's God's grace in the gospel that makes us whole. So that we don't need to go striving after the things of this world to, to, to heal our hurting ego or to find an identity. And so we are called here to rest in the gospel as we live lives of virtue as older men, 
older women, younger men, and younger women. So next week, we will conclude our consideration of this chapter, but I'd like to return to that question I put before you at the beginning. What is the church to focus upon in her teaching and preaching? Well, Paul is adamantly clear here, unequivocally clear. The church, Titus, is to teach with all authority the good works that accord with the sound doctrine of the grace of God. Let us pray. Merciful Father, we thank you for the wisdom of your word. We thank you for the church of Jesus Christ and, and uh, the blessing of belonging to your church. We thank you for uh, Gig Harbor URC and the joys and challenges of belonging to a church plant. And we pray, O oh Lord, that your word would continue to bear much fruit within our lives, within our community. We pray that the sound doctrine of the grace of God would cause us, would motivate us to be virtuous and, and self-controlled people within within our marriages, within our home life, within the church, within our daily vocations. Uh, we thank you that we do